0: Many people talk today about this cancel culture that's emerged where people commit some kind of transgression, usually online, and people come down on them with full force and basically excommunicate them, Yeah. right? Treat them as though they're lepers. We know, based on the science, that that's the wrong way to win people over. How do you stop a bad
1: idea? It's a really interesting question. I work in marketing, Piper, we're always focused on making ideas spread, but the opposite of that is making an idea peter out, lose steam. My guest today, Andy Norman, is the author of a book called Mental Immunity, and he is attempting, he is aiming, he is hoping that it can be a catalyst for an entire field of scientific study and discovery associated with cognitive immunology. Cognitive immunology aspires to understand how the body can fight off bad ideas through discourse and socialization in the same way that computer networks protect themselves from malware or the human body protects itself from various viruses. Andy is an incredibly thoughtful guy. I've known him for a very long time, and I really hope that the launch of his book is a success because this is a very important idea in these crazy, turbulent, highly ideologically and politically charged times. We need arenas for public discourse. That's what I hope this show can be. It's why I appreciate you, the listener, bringing an open mind to all these conversations that we have. Here is another good one with Andy Norman. you're listening to
0: going deep with Aaron Watson
1: <laughs> Andy thanks for coming on the podcast man I'm excited to be talking with you my pleasure Aaron it's great to see you again so I have this you know immense um, responsibility to be the first person after being shipped to your home to hold this book in your hand coming out in a couple weeks mental immunity. And something we we started to explore before the the cameras and the mics came on that I think is an amazing jumping off point is I run a marketing firm. I co-founded it with Hannah. Our whole job is to make memes spread. yes And the whole objective of this book, if I understand it correctly, Uh is to figure out ways, maybe not to stop the spread of all memes, that probably isn't even possible, but to curtail the growth and the spread of the more unhealthy memes that make their way through society. So let's start off with just talking a little bit about why that's so important and how you suggest
0: we start doing that. All right. Yeah, so I guess maybe start with some common ground. Um, Both probably agree that when good ideas spread virally, that's a good thing. But when bad ideas spread virally, that's probably a bad thing. Hundred percent. So um, the mental immunity talked about in the book uh, refers to our mind's ability to resist the uptake of bad ideas. So um, men- what I call mental immune health uh, involves uh, increasing your ability to screen out and remove bad ideas, but you also wanna do that in a way that allows good ideas to continue to flow in, right? So uh, just as the, uh, the body's immune system has to screen out harmful parasites, it al- it's also has to allow, it, ha- it can't be so aggressive that it attacks the body's own tissues. It can't be so aggressive that it uh, screens out. You don't want to, in an attempt to keep out bad ideas, you don't want to also screen out good ideas.
1: Yeah, it's like having good bacteria in your gut, and if you, you know, drink bleach or something, you're gonna kill all the bacteria. That's gonna, it's gonna cause all <laughs> sorts of issues. But that's going to be that's right uh, damaging that's to the whole no, system. That's no no formula for health. Exactly. No matter what our former president said. <laughs> exactly. So. I think that that's maybe another kind of helpful analogy or metaphor, uh, which is the idea that we think about either networks or we think about viral spread very naturally in the realms of biology, yes, COVID evidenced here this past year, or in IT with like network security and the capacity. This feels like more of like a like a stereotype or a meme of yesteryear, but like the idea that some office had like all their computers frozen by the same virus at the same time because one person opened an email and then it just spread throughout the office. Yes. But like those are the two maybe more readily accessible analogies for network spread and the same idea where, you know, the reason that we want people to get vaccinated is you turn off these nodes as vectors of, contamin- of, of spreading, and then a network's capacity for it to spread widely is greatly reduced.
0: Yeah. So uh, just as uh, human populations create a network within which uh, pathogens can spread, and just as the internet is an environment in which, uh, say, y- you know, harmful digital parasites can spread. In just the same way, social networks are environments in which bad ideas can spread and cause uh, a great deal of harm by changing people's outlooks on the world into ones that are dysfunctional in various ways. Um, and a dysfunctional worldview can harm you yourself uh, as the host of, of a bad idea, but it can also harm others. And so we've seen you know, uh, extremist political ideologies spread uh, around the world in alarming ways in recent years. And when that happens, it's not just the people who are infected with those bad ideas who get hurt. This this social fabric uh, gets torn in ways that affect us all. So we need a better understanding of how to inoculate minds against harmful ideas and false ideas. And it turns out that there's this brand new science emerging that says, Mental immune systems are real. We can study them the way we study any other natural system. We can learn how they work. We can learn why they fail. And we can learn how to make them work better.
1: And I think that there's a, there's a, a scary, like if I, once again, the issue with these memes is people just like run across the surface, take some little thing, and then, you know, grossly misinterpret it in another direction. Yeah. And when I hear something like incul- inculcate some people's minds, that almost like, Echoes of some sort of uh, big brother propagandist campaign in order to align everyone look in the same direction you're not talking about something like that you're talking about something I, I almost thought
0: it as like the Socratic method with better branding or kind of a more modern branding yeah so when you talk about um, mind inoculation on a society wide scale, you know people worry that it might be a tool for brainwashing yeah right um, and so so I think we need to acknowledge a couple of things number one is we can't just allow irresponsible beliefs and ideas to spread without, uh, un- in uncontrolled ways. But how do you do that without creating a thought police? Yes. Right? So, and philosophers going back thousands of years have realized that the, way to, the best way to do that is to actually engage in dialogue where you test ideas and help each other shed the dysfunctional ideas that don't withstand questioning. So so the ancient technology, mind inoculation technology that I promote in the book, but also evolve on the basis of the more recent scientific research, is, is essentially the, so- the Socratic method, a method of dialogue in which I uh, use primarily questions to call attention to the problematic features of problematic ideas, so that we become less attached to them and less prone to act in ways that harm us, harm yourself and others. And how
1: do you recommend going out into the world and carrying that with you? Because if I know my history correctly, pretty sure Socrates' story didn't end in the, <laughs> didn't in end the best well for way. <laughs> <laughs> and someone who, who knows the history might be like, oh, I'm not sure I necessarily want to adopt that that strategy.
0: Yeah. So uh, Socrates, of course, if for those of you who may not be familiar, was an ancient Greek philosopher who wandered the streets of Athens just t- testing people's ideas in a kind of collaborative uh, way, but in the process, uh, but, but Socrates had a bit of a mean streak and he could use his method of questioning to make people look silly. He was so sharp, so good at asking the right questions that he could catch people out and, and uh, get them in sort of gotcha moments. So he, ra- he, he created some enemies. Um, and the Athenian state ended up deciding that he was a threat to civil civic order and to the prevailing religion. And so they convicted him in a famous trial. Uh, this was about 400 years before the birth of Christ. Um, and they sentenced him to death and made him drink hemlock. So as I say in the book, um, bad idea removal can be a tough business. Yeah. Philosophers throughout history have been demonized and hounded into exile and excommunicated for the kind of work they do. People get attached to their ideas, and when somebody else comes along and says, hey, wait a second here, are we really sure we want to rely on that idea? Most people respond defensively. And in fact, in just the same way that the body's immune system is a defense against microbes, against dangerous pathogens, we tend to respond defensively to challenges to our beliefs because we view our beliefs as as part of us. Yeah, And so... Bad idea removal is a hazardous is an inherently hazardous business that can be made far less hazardous if we buy into the cultural norms that encourage and welcome idea testing. And so, in terms, so so I also think about
1: this in in the way you know we we see the different maps of the viral spread of virus like COVID, it's like little cluster, little cluster, little cluster and they start to spread outwards. Yes. I think that this really comes down to very kind of small groups. So if it's your company and it's a company where uh, there is no one whose ideas are too big to be attacked. That's a, a famous part of the uh, Bridgewater Associates, uh, one of the largest hedge funds on the planet. Their ethos is even the founder can get questioned by the entry-level analyst nice. on, on his first day.
0: The Socrates stamp of
1: approval. It, it okay. tends it tends to make things work. But I always think about like this, this almost like compare and contrast where you have to go kind of cultivate those cultures first figure out ways to allow that to emanate outward. But then on the flip side, when I see the the more extremist ideologies that um, are, are covered in different kind of media outlets or actually um, expressed in, in action, mm-hmm. I always see loneliness. I always see folks that did not have the social cohesion of the folks that hopefully would check you on those ideas, even if it's not like like a deep philosophical norm. I've got my couple friends who hopefully, I, I think, will call me on my BS when I'm full of BS. Yes. I know my fiance will do that. I know that my parents will do that. I know the people closest to me will do that. Yes. And I often see loneliness where there wasn't just one person being like,
0: like not even not even that harsh of a question, just being like, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you might want to double... We rethink that, buddy, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so one of the important things you're, you're saying here, I think, is that idea testing is a team sport. So yes. we talk a lot about think for yourself, right? And there's a lot of uh, worry right now that if you buy into prevailing narratives, you'll just end up being a sheep, right? That, yes. That ends up uh, being hoodwinked by a narrative being pushed by, by some powerful interest. Right. That's a, that's a, that, and, but that suspicion can actually subvert your own mind's immune system. So, um, I mean, questions and doubts are the antibodies of the mind. Right. But it's possible to hotwire a mind's immune system in such a way that those antibodies go into overdrive and question too much or question the wrong things. There's almost like an like a, like a overwhelming cynicism or an overwhelming like nihilism. I, exactly. So cynicism and nihilism, I would actually argue, are mental immune disorders. Interesting. Um, and so, so when people are lonely, when they become cynical— they become more susceptible to bad ideas. And they end up being so defensive and scared that they end up screening out many good ideas, scientifically validated ideas. Um, And so cultivating trust, cultivating, building a community of people who are committed to helping each other test ideas is a really important part of maintaining your own mental immune health. Um, Don't try to go it alone. Like no scientist doesn't rely on the findings and the idea testing of other scientists. In fact, what makes science special, what makes it such a shining exemplar of, of how to conduct our, our mental affairs is the fact that scientists buy into a set of norms and practices that keep their worst instincts and their selfish instincts in check. If I want to get famous by pushing my ideas in science, there'll be 10 other scientists out there who will test those, my hypothesis and reveal the fact if I'm either fudging my data or, or not thinking logically. And that, that collaborative sort of, uh, it's almost uh, like crowdsourced idea testing. That's what makes science special. And every single one of us can get a piece of that by just developing a set of friends who likes to, likes to ask each other questions and really put us through our paces to make sure we're thinking right. And I, I think that there's always a challenge here when we think about like a network of
1: ideas of who this reaches, who, you know, like I, like I already knew the Socrates story, right? So I'm kind yeah. of already a fertile mind to the ideas of a book like this. Yes. But then there are the folks who are so deeply... Um, entrenched in the nihilism the cynicism what have you that they become so hard to reach so can you actually like either specifically or, or with kind of um, kind of steps help people understand like okay maybe I do have that crazy uncle that just like yeah it's kind of off the deep end <laughs> I don't really know yes.
0: how to bring this person back without some sort of like real yeah th- th- those are um, the hardest cases right you yeah know, the people who, so um. Here are a couple of things that we've learned from sort of studying how mental immunity works. Number one is that prevention is a lot easier than cure. So if you could prevent a mind infection, uh, that's a heck of a lot easier than trying to deprogram somebody who's been sucked into a cult. Yeah. Cult deprogramming is hard, but what inoculation theorists call pre-bunking. So it's it's relatively hard to debunk an ideology. It's relatively easy to pre-bunk it, which is to say build the mental immunity necessary to keep that idea from taking root in your mind in the first place. So the the biggest benefits of this new science can be will take will happen in subsequent generations. So if we can actually redesign education to impart deep immunity to bad ideas and we should be able to do that within a generation if we set our minds to it. If we can do that, we can spare future generations these crazy epidemics of unreason that we've been witnessing in our country and around the world. So, so that, that, that's the low-hanging fruit. Right? Yeah. The, those, that's the relatively easy... We, we, we can do that and have a huge impact on posterity and the, and the human prospect. But we also have crazy uncles that we need to talk to and get along with and, uh, if, and if possible, rescue from, from their, the conspiracy theories that, that infect their minds. So one of my colleagues who studies the mind's immune system has, a, has developed an app, a game, where you can actually try to, he calls it cranky uncle. Okay. <laughs> and, and the cranky uncle has all kinds of crazy conspiracy theorists, theories. And you actually try to interact with him by tapping on the phone in different ways to try to help him uh, have an aha moment and maybe just open his mind just a little bit to rethinking his views. I mean, I think that this, that, the applied side of cognitive, immu- cognitive immunology is my name for the science of mental immunity. And it's still a young discipline and its applications are even younger. So we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what's possible here. But uh, let, let me just tell a story or something that'll yeah. help to illustrate how this can be done. Have you ever heard of Daryl Davis? Uh, I have not. So Daryl Davis is a black blues musician who uh, got to talking with a white supremacist at a bar after one of his shows. And the white supremacist had never realized that good blues music comes from, uh, he thought uh, blues music came from like Jerry Lee Lewis, a, 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 a white guy. And this guy had no idea that Jerry Lee Lewis had learned the blues from from black guys, Yeah, right? Um, and so Daryl got to talking with him. Turned out this guy was a grand cyclops of the KKK. Daryl Davis learned that he was a flat out racist. And instead of just canceling him or vilifying him and walking away, he talked to him. Yeah. He listened to the guy. He invited him over and listened to him rant about his racist views. And he just waited until the guy actually felt heard and validated by his, by Daryl's listening. And then Daryl got to raise some questions of his own that helped this guy see past this um, mental trap he'd thought himself into this racist white supremacist ideology that had driven his life up to that point this guy ended up quitting the KKK giving Daryl his Klan robes and helping Daryl deconvert hundreds of other Klansmen wow that's what we can do with dialogue if you really know how to listen and ask people the right questions you can reach even your crazy uncle
1: and i think i think the the not canceling part of it is another really important pillar to this idea because to me like like i said earlier in this conversation it always seems tied to loneliness the worst yes. stuff is always tied to there just being no social connection and once again it's very easy to be nihilistic if you have no social connections whatsoever, Yes. that's when it seems completely appropriate to go do terrible, awful things like the Tree of Life massacre, like all these different shootings that we've seen. And so while I understand something like, hey, you know, this person has done something terrible, I'm not going to buy their stuff anymore. That seems completely within reason to me. But to completely socially unmourn an individual has its own collection of dangers that come around with it. And I and so I really want to hang on that idea and maybe you can elaborate on this idea of the alternative to canceling, the next evolution of how we handle these things. And and candidly it sounds like with with Daryl Davis, the grace with which you need to kind of carry yourself in order to be able to not just close the book on
0: someone and say, well, that person's gone now. <laughs> not gonna be a problem. Right. Yeah, man. I, I mean Daryl's courage, number one, I mean he's yeah. had to bend to clan rallies, right? But but also his his composure in a emotionally charged conversation. His ability to kind of bite his tongue, bite his time, listen to hate, listen to deranged ideas, and not get defensive. Right? Yeah. Because you have to control your own capacity to get defensive if you're gonna help other people strengthen their mental immune systems. Yes. So Many people talk today about this cancel culture that's emerged where people commit some kind of transgression usually online and people come down on them with full force and basically excommunicate them yeah right treat them as though they're lepers we know based on the science that that's the wrong way to win people over in fact if it if they're if their incorrect views spring from loneliness, you're just gonna exacerbate that loneliness and exacerbate their delusions by cutting them off, right? So I mean, think about um, when two countries are, are in conflict and one size says, we don't like your behavior, we're gonna stop talking to you. Th- that doesn't help the relationship move in the right direction, right? Um, if you want to try to nudge another country into, in a better direction, you keep talking to them because when we talk to each other and really listen, we bring out the best in one another. When we uh, when we cut each other off and vilify and castigate each other, we bring out the worst in each other. So, the I mean, there's a ton of science on this and, and it should not be controversial. What we do need to do is take responsibility to change the culture so that we're not busy canceling each other and making each other, each other feel more lonely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I worry about the loneliness stuff too for all sorts of different reasons. One of my favorite books that I've talked to other people in the past is Tribes by Sebastian Junger. He talks about, um, you know, not only the happiness that people had in these times of intense strife and challenge that um, kind of brought brought them together during warfare, but also just kind of like the natural give and take to even just traditional like left and right type of political leanings. Every single, you know, primitive tribe, we take it back to the same idea. You talk about excommunicated, It was exceptionally dangerous to get uh, kicked out of the tribe that basically meant death. But even within that tribe, the healthy dynamic was there was a push and a pull to caring for those in need and the pragmatism of like, well, we've only got so much at this point in time. We can only, you know, do so much with our limited resources. Yes. And I... Yeah, it just it it hurts how much I want to have those healthier conversations and to see the
0: debates and the the public discourse not really reflective of that capacity that we have. Yes, well, and Sebastian Junger is somebody I admire hugely, and I love the book you're referring to, Tribe. I think Tribe, Tribe, singular tribes. Yeah, Um, he actually uh, was the star cross country runner on the uh, college. College cross-country team. No Sebastian way. Sebastian Wenger, yeah. So uh, I didn't know him personally, but I uh, roomed with his, his little sister, actually, for a while. Nice. Um, yeah, so one of the things that really stood out to me from Jünger's book about this, he he's a, becomes an embedded reporter who you know experiences life uh, in battle. with, And he realizes that members of a unit that have to protect one another. And I mean, their survival becomes existential when they're out there on the front lines of a war in Afghanistan or Iraq, right? And the kind of social bonds that develop under those conditions are so intensely meaningful that many veterans who've returned from the wars actually crave the feeling of comradeship that they had when they were serving. Yeah. overseas. Despite the horrendous conditions, despite the danger, they, they would take on all of that back a lot of times just for that sense of unity and togetherness that they got to experience when their lives were on the line and they had each other's backs. This speaks to a feature of human nature that I think runs really deep. We need to feel as though we matter to one another and we need to feel as though we matter in profound ways to one another. And right now, our modern capitalistic society doesn't afford many of us opportunities to matter and connect and belong in those deeply satisfying ways. And so there's this, 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 there's this hunger, there's this, um, you, you know, is this all there is sense that, that just seems to prevail all over. And when a culture doesn't, doesn't find a way to make everybody feel like they matter... Um, it starts to become dysfunctional in all kinds of ways. And we see that uh, with you know, um, Black Lives Matter protesters saying, we're sick and tired of not being treated like we don't matter. And you see it uh, when Trump supporters react with anger and, and bitterness at, at an economic system that, that seems to be leaving them behind, right? Um, in both cases, they feel like they don't matter and culture wars escalate under such conditions. We need to get back to stopping the spread of bad ideas, listening to one another so that we feel directly in a very immediate way that we matter to each other because that's the way we heal our, our divided culture and get back to flourishing.
1: I'm into that. And I'm, I'm into the, the book. I'm into the premise. I'm also into two other authors that you um, cite in the book as being kind of influences on you. So I'd love to maybe touch on both of those, have you summarize a little bit of like what you, you took from each of them, because mm-hmm. I think that Uh, you know, some people do, some people don't know, like, you know, the origins of economic thought or the origins of a specific, you know, subdomain of science. But if we're talking about this future of cognitive immunology, it seems like both Jonathan Haidt and Richard Dawkins would also be, um, you know, forefathers of of this kind of movement. So can you talk a little bit about the ideas that they've elevated for folks that don't, don't necessarily know and the kind of role that that plays within the context of this idea of cognitive
0: immunology. Yeah. So I I talk about Jonathan Haidt's work uh, in the early pages of the book. So Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, why we're divided by, why good people are divided by politics and religion. Um, And he basically shows that a huge body of research in social psychology uh, shows that we're profoundly tribal animals, right? He calls us groupish creatures, right? Um, And it turns out that we will turn a blind eye to evidence to cement and preserve the social relationships that matter to us. So we'll take our tribal affiliate, our tribal affiliations will often cause us to embrace untruths and bad ideas because um, having a belief set that coheres with those in our circle matters more to us in a lot of cases than knowing the truth. And I think I've seen a video that like demonstrates this where there's like a,
1: a woman who thinks she's part of like a focus group, but she's actually just the single subject of the experiment and yes. everyone else is like, I, I don't know, it's, like they, they hold up like a, a card and it has like three lines on it and they ask everyone how many lines are on the card. It goes two, 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 and it comes to her she's like three, <laughs> two, <laughs> yes. and then they literally do the next one and it's like four and everyone goes three, 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 and she like, you like watch her look around and she goes. Three? <laughs> like, like <laughs> yes. immediately, like, it's like, it's, those are four lines. Your eyes do not deceive you. And yet, that need for alignment with the, the group yep. supersedes freaking
0: obvious facts. Yeah, that's a particularly vivid uh, and fa- famous experiment yeah. um, and particularly vivid demonstration of this. You, you, we care about agreeing, agreeing with others. Yeah. And so, when everybody else around us is saying something, we're going to have a hard time disagreeing with them. A few. People like Socrates were very comfortable being outliers in their viewpoints. Yeah. And th- they're often the people who ask the important questions and get us to rethink orthodoxies that need rethinking. Um, you mentioned Do- Richard Dawkins as yeah. well. I'll uh, uh, tell a story about this. Back in the early 90s, I was r- asked to review a book for an for a academic journal. Um, and in that book was an article by Richard Dawkins called Viruses of the Mind, and in that book, he basically says, you know, bad ideas can spread like viruses, and we need a discipline called, he called it, information epidemiology. So basically a science that studies how memes spread, going back to how we, where we started, right? Yep. So he called for that, and he actually, of course, had coined the term meme himself. Richard Dawkins um, invented the term. Um, but in that article, Dawkins also points to the fact that, you know, a... A four-year-old kid who will believe in the tooth fairy if their parents tell them the right. tooth fairy exists. It's almost like they have an, uh, an underdeveloped mental immune system. He, he made some kind of passing allusion. He, he says you can compare you know, gullible children to immune-compromised adults something like that. But he didn't develop the idea. But I, but I started thinking about the idea way back in the early 90s. And I realized that just as we need information epidemiology, we also need cognitive immunology. We need to know how ideas spread. So you can apply the principles and mathematics of, of epidemiology to study how memes spread online or even through social networks. Uh, but you can also apply the concepts of immunology to understand why some of us are highly susceptible to bad ideas and others have a, great, a good deal of resistance to them. And we can actually learn to develop our immunity to bad ideas so that we become wiser versions of ourselves. There's a I'll toss on another story here if yeah. uh, this might help. Um, I think you might be able to relate to this. So the key fact for this story is that I was brought up in a family that practically revered Martin Luther King. Um, in fact, my parents lived in D.C. and were prepared to go to his I Have a Dream speech. Uh, but my mom was nine months pregnant with me. Wow. So five days before I was born, my mom can't go to hear my, the I Have a Dream speech. My dad goes and he's blown away. And my mom's, you know, it's like... It's a little bit of resentment. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. Okay, kid, you got some answer, something to answer for. Before I was even born, I had something to answer for. Yeah. But I was taught, right, that uh, Martin Luther King was a hugely admirable human being. And when I learned uh, at some point in my life that Martin Luther King was a serial philanderer, he was unfaithful to his wife. And when I heard this, I refused to believe it. I didn't want to believe it. I, it, it clashed with something that was almost... Uh, sacred. Yeah. For me.
1: That's like a founding story. Like, like, like what you just told, it's like a founding story for you, Andy
0: Norman, the person. I, I, I guess I guess it does. Yeah. And and what's fascinating about this is I remember very vividly um observing what happened in my own mind when I learned that Martin Luther King was a serial philanderer. Um I my mind instantly generated six reasons to dismiss the new information. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is probably one of those myths that, the FBI, that J. Edgar Hoover from, yep. from the CIA spread to discredit Martin Luther King, right? Oh, this is just a, uh, a rumor, right, put forth by his detractors. Well, it turns out they were true, but my mind was actually sending what turned out to be antibodies to consume this new information and eliminate it. Um, I was reminded of, of a famous experiment in the history of science where uh, a Russian zoologist, he wants to study the body's immune system, right? And so he takes a starfish and a tangerine thorn, and he stabs the starfish and sticks it under his microscope. And he was the first human being to ever witness white blood cells rush to the scene of the injury and try to neutralize the tip of the tangerine thorn. He actually got to see the body's anti- the the body's antibodies in action. And he helped us understand how the body's immune system worked. I was reminded of that story because that was exactly what was happening in my mind to try to neutralize this information, this unwelcome information that Martin Luther King was not morally pure. And so my mind's immune system was actually trying to keep out a truth because it felt threatening. Yeah. And it turns out you can hack mental immune systems so that they... Let in bad stuff and keep out good stuff. And and as the culture wars heated up, we've seen more and more sort of demagogic actors actually use techniques that that subvert and compromise mental immunity. And once you've done that, people will believe almost anything, especially if they're lonely.
1: Exactly. And one of the other parts of that that you know, back to like being in the business of make helping ideas to spread, is that. In similar to that uh, kind of cog- that that antibody type of response, another way in terms of the actual gateway into a mind is to make it exceptionally simple. So we'll talk about it like the the disease of expertise or the the, the, the um, challenge of expertise is you're a 9 out of 10 on something and you're trying to bring it down but because you're so knowledgeable, you like can't even bring it down past like a 6 or a 5 out of 10. So in your case, <laughs>
0: you, you, you mean this is what I'm doing right now? No, 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 okay, no, good. no, no, no.
1: But, but my, my job as a marketer or, or the job of uh, the translator is to just help rip it all the way down to a one out of 10, a two out of 10. Beautiful And that is what allows more people to just kind of grasp on to the idea. Yeah. And so as a marketer, what you're doing with the, the client's message, what you're doing with their story, what you're doing with one of their memes is like, okay, let's, let's shave everything else away. And you think about all of the elements of effective propaganda. It's exceptionally simple. You're not spending many... Many calories in your brain trying to understand what this person's saying yes. or what the message is. It's exceptionally simple, so that your mind can actually grok it. It's not some obscure, opaque text. It's not you know I'm not reading Dostoyevsky or something trying to like right. un-
0: uncover the riddle. Yeah, I, so so com- I, I can't help but contrast in my mind. Um, so so when climate scientists go out there and they investigate what's happening to our planet's climate. And you know these people are highly trained specialists who have to absorb all this jargon just to kind of do what they do. Right. Um, and when they try to explain it to the public, a lot of the times they struggle. So I, I was trained as an academic. I learned all of this philosophical jargon yeah. and became so deeply enmeshed in that that I didn't know how to communicate with normal people yeah. about the stuff that, I had to unlearn so much. Yeah. Just to write this book exactly <laughs> right um and I've gone a i think a long way towards um i mean the the metaphor of of the mental the mind's immune system actually takes these arcane things that philosophers have been wrestling with for hundreds thousands of years and makes them relatively simple now, in the later chapters of the book, I actually have to get kind of technical to develop what I call uh deep immunity or like a, a method for developing deep wisdom um and so uh, don 't start at the end of the book and work backwards, start <laughs> at the beginning and work your way forwards as one does but but even
1: that like like the idea so another kind of like cue to yourself is. I can think of certain foods like an Oreo, which would almost be the equivalent of that kind of dangerously simple piece of propaganda, Yes. where I bite my Oreo, and I don't even realize I've eaten that Oreo, I'm already thinking about the next one, like I, I right. haven't even processed the consumption of it, which is basically similar to what you're saying, this, this lack of a critical thinking to an idea as it gets absorbed, where it's so simple that I'm not even recognizing the consumption of the idea or the the granting of access of that meme.
0: And you're reminding me of the other half of what I, what I meant but forgot to say on this. When you contrast what climate scientists are trying to teach us about the climate, you know, with all of their fancy ass jargon, with Trump's climate change is a hoax. Yeah. Four words. Dead simple. Yeah. And you don't even have to fully believe it for it to kind of get its hooks into you simply because it's simple and direct and emotionally powerful. And if it's repeated often enough, it doesn't have to be true to start to warp your mind in certain ways.
1: And, and to be consumed because of that repetition. I mean, that's, that's another thing, like literally there's um, you know books on persuasion by Cialdini and these other characters yeah. where that is just a known way in which to go about persuading someone. But to me, I think another kind of model that, that that's in this, maybe in the, this uh, framework of cognitive immunity is it's like, okay, if I'm eating stuff and I'm not even wrecking, like if I'm not even feeling the bite, that's a cue. This is probably some overprocessed,
0: chemically altered oh. garbage. I see what you're saying here. Um, yeah, it, it's almost like so when you're watching TV with a box of Air, Oreos in your lap, exactly, and all of a sudden you realize you've eaten half the box, right? Yes, uh, your attention may not have even been on the Oreos, they, they're they just, engineered
1: they, to not get your attention, right? They, engineered... they go down so easy, exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, and and what's happening in a situation like that is you're being, uh, mindless about your food consumption and we can also become mindless about our information consumption and that leads to all kinds of problems i mean the the socratic method that we talked about earlier where you ask questions and actually pause to really reflect on them that's a way of becoming mindful again about the information you're consuming and our culture needs that so badly we need to re become mindful again about and, and, and we can do this. I mean, one of two things has to happen. Either we have to do away with the internet, or we need to develop much stronger immunity to bad ideas. I think The, f- it, <laughs> the former ain't going to happen, yeah. which leaves us with one option. Yeah, yeah. Word. So, uh,
1: Andy, we're, we're aiming towards the end of our time here. And I think that you'll have a pretty good handle on the ideas that you're exploring. They obviously have to go into the book to go deeper into that stuff. But uh, before we ask the kind of standard last two questions, is there anything else you're hoping to share
0: today that I just didn't give you the chance to? Uh, you've done a marvelous job of interviewing. I think we've we've touched on so many of the uh, ideas that matter to me. So I, I'm grateful for that and I'm happy to leave it right there. Wonderful. Well, if people want to find the book, find out more about you, what digital coordinates can we provide people? Yeah. So uh, my website's a good place to begin, uh, just andynorman.org. If you go there, you'll, you'll learn about my work and and more importantly, I think the book. There is also, we're also building a website devoted to the science of cognitive immunology. So cognitiveimmunology.net will help you learn the basics of this new science and help you understand how you can apply its principles to become uh, a, a deeper, more mindful thinker yourself. Right on.
1: We're going to link that all. It's going to be in the show notes for this episode, either in the podcast app, you're probably listening to this right now, or at goingdeepwithaaron.com podcast for every single episode of the show. But before we let you go, Andy, I want to give you the mic one final time to
0: issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Actionable personal challenge. Okay. Well, there's, there, there are so many things you can do to build your own immunity and to become what well, all of us can do. To become uh, more immune to bad ideas. So, every single one of us has, harbors uh, mind parasites because bad ideas are mind parasites and we all have them. One thing you can do uh, is to learn to treat your beliefs as house guests rather than sort of heirloom furniture to be passed down the generations. So, many of us come very attached to our beliefs and we we want to cling, we want to hang on to them, and that makes it hard for us to to learn and grow. But if you learn to treat your beliefs as people, as entities that might wear out their welcome, beliefs might serve you well for a while, but there may come a time, just just as a house guest might wear out his welcome and and eventually uh, best be sent packing, in just the same way, uh, we should regard our beliefs that way. Maybe maybe a, a particular belief, uh, is especially important to you and deserves to be treated as an honored house guest, but it might just bec- you might reach a point where it makes sense to let go of that belief and up- and replace it with something that actually helps you become that actually serves your own interests better. So uh, I call this the house guest heuristic and urge people to adopt it as a way to become lifelong learners. Beautiful.
1: Well. Wow. Uh, I'm going to take that challenge. I hope that everyone else out there listening will as well. And uh, best of luck with the book launch. I hope that it goes exceptionally well. Thanks so much, Aaron. It's been a pleasure. We just went deep with Andy Norman. Hope you're out there. It's a fantastic day. hey thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with andy if you enjoyed this i think you'll also enjoy an episode we did just three episodes ago with dimitri Kafinis. we talk about the search for epistemic truth geopolitics and the challenges of making sense of the world in a modern technological environment we're trying to go deep here that's the name of the show i appreciate you giving some time and attention we'll catch you next week Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.